what was he thinking this weekend? A gentleman was at the Bronx Zoo in New York City. He was riding the monorail that went throughout the park looking at the different animals. When the monorail got to the place where they kept the tigers, he jumped off the monorail into the tiger's den. And one of the tigers did what tigers do. He began to attack. And some zoo workers came to his aid. They sprayed a fire extinguisher to get the, the tigers to back up, and then they had him roll under an electric boundary fence so he was safe from those tigers. Now, I don't know what he was thinking when he jumped off the monorail into the tiger's den, but I'm pretty sure I can imagine what he was thinking when the tiger started to attack. He was probably thinking, this was not a good move. I need some help. And what I want you to understand is that all of us need some help. When it comes to life, when it comes to living, when it comes to being who God has called us to be, we need some assistance. We can't do it on our own. And I want us to see this from 1 Samuel chapter 7. So turn there with me. 1 Samuel chapter 7 as we continue our study through this Old Testament book. 1 Samuel chapter 7. Begin reading in verse 1. I want to ask you this morning if you are physically able to please stand with me in honor of the reading of the Word of God. There in verse 1, the Bible says, The men of Kiriath-Jerim came and took the ark of the Lord and brought it to the house of Abinadab on the hill and consecrated Eleazar, his son, to keep the ark of the Lord. From the day that the ark remained at Kiriath-Jerim, the time was long, for it was twenty years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we pause to acknowledge you to acknowledge our need for you. Lord, we ask you just to draw near, open the eyes of our hearts that we might see the timeless truths of Scripture. And Lord, help us by your grace to take those truths and apply them to our day-in, day-out lives. Have your way in our midst for the fame of your name. Lord, glorify yourself in this moment. And we ask and pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. We've seen as we've journeyed through the book of 1 Samuel that the setting at the beginning of the book was spiritual darkness. God's people were living in rebellion against uh, Him. Uh, the last verse of the book of Judges, which was the time period in which 1 Samuel was set, said that every man did what was right in his own eyes. The land was filled with utter lawlessness and rebellion. Uh, but God was not through with his people. God wanted to intervene in the lives of the Israelites to lead them out of spiritual darkness into spiritual light. So he raises up a leader named Samuel, a new prophet. And Samuel is introduced to us in chapters 1 through uh, the very beginning of, of chapter 4. But in the remainder of chapter 4 and in chapter 5 and in chapter 6, there's no mention of Samuel. The narrative shifts to focus on the Ark of the Covenant and an ongoing conflict between the Israelites 
and the Philistine. And here's what happened. Because of the wickedness of Israel and her leaders, God allowed the Philistines to defeat them in battle. And the crowning disaster had been that the ark of God was taken. The Philistines took the ark to Ashdod and set it in the house of Dagon. And because the Lord was jealous for his glory and honor, he caused the god Dagon to fall. And then he punished the inhabitants of any city that the ark was taken to. Finally, the Philistines got fed up with this, this plague God was sending because they held onto the ark. And they sent the ark back to uh, Beth Shemesh. And uh, after a time there, they sent the ark to kiriath Jerim. And it says there in verse uh, 1, raised up a leader named Eleazar to, to be a caretaker for the ark, to watch over the ark. That's the setting. The ark had returned to Israel, but Israel is still um, in, a, in, a, in a quandary. Because look what it says in verse 3. All the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. There was a, a lamentation going on. They were, they were in despair. They needed God's help. And we'll see that as we work through this passage this morning. But what I want to do is, I want to use this passage as a template for us to understand how we can make God our helper. This passage is about Israel making God their helper, uh, positioning themselves to be helped by God. And we all need God's help. And so we want to see how God's help can become a, a daily reality in our lives. So I want to have four truths that I want to give you that come from this chapter today that help us to answer the question, how can we make God our helper? And here's the first answer to that question. The first answer is this, recognize your need for God's help. Recognize your need for God's help. It says there in verse 3 that even though the ark had returned, and they had had the ark for 20 years, the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. So why were they sad? Why were they lamenting? Well, look what it says in verse 3. Samuel spoke to all the house of Israel, saying, If you return to the Lord with all your heart... Remove the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you and direct your hearts to the Lord and serve him alone. Then he will deliver you from the hand of the Philistines. So we get from the words of Samuel that the Israelites were still living under the oppression of uh, the cruel Philistine empire. And uh, the Philistines were oppressing them and controlling them and ruling them. And they're lamenting because they are under the control of this nation. They desperately needed God's help. The word lament there in verse 3 is the word to wail or to mourn, a passionate expression of grief. They were in a desperate situation. And, and you and I both know that if we live long enough, we're going to encounter some desperate situations just like the Israelites did. And, and here's the, the good thing about desperate situations. If you look there on your notes, desperate situations should point us to God. God can use desperation in your life and desperation in my life to remind us of how much we need Him, to help us to recognize our need for God's help. Desperate situations point us to God. You see, our weakness requires God's strength. You see, you and I are weak. And if you don't think you're weak, it's because you don't understand your human frailty or limitations. We are weak. And when we realize how weak we are, it feeds in our lives a desire for God's strength. Our weakness requires God's strength. So the first step into, into tapping into God's help for your life is to simply recognize that you need His help. Let me read you this quote from Charles Spurgeon, great English preacher of the uh, late 19th century. He said in a sermon on this text, 
Am I speaking to one who has come to this conviction? Nobody can help me but God. I am so down at the heel, so broken in spirit, I am brought into such a condition that unless the heavens are rent and the right hand of God appears, there is no rescue for me. Spurgeon says, I am right glad that you are brought into that condition. There is much gained when you look away from all others and from all else to God. You know what Spurgeon is saying? He's saying, if you're desperate, if you are in a quandary, if you're in a crisis, and you realize you can't fix it yourself, Spurgeon says, that's a good thing. And it's a good thing because if you can't fix it yourself, you'll start looking around for some help. It will cause you to begin to look for help from God. And so, step number one is recognize your need for God's help. And if you're not convinced that you need help in life, let me just quote for you the words of Jesus from John 15, 5. Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. Did you hear that? Apart from me, you can do nothing. We are desperate for the Lord's help. And, and, and the, Phil, the, the Israelites... Uh, knew that. They were made aware of that by the oppression of the Philistines. And we need to understand that in our lives uh, today. Recognize your need for God's help. Here's the second truth I want you to see. How can you make God your helper? Not only do you recognize your need for God's help, but secondly, you position yourself to receive God's help. This is so important. You position yourself to receive God's help. Look what Samuel says to them in verse 3. Samuel spoke to all the house of Israel, saying, If you return to the Lord with all your heart... Remove the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you. Direct your hearts to the Lord and serve him alone. He will deliver you from the hand of the Philistines. Here's what Samuel's saying. Okay, you're in a desperate situation. You're being oppressed by the Philistines. You want deliverance. You want freedom from that oppression. But if you really want God's help, you need to make sure you focus upon God. You can't ignore God, he's saying to the Israelites. And expect God to come running to your aid. It's not how it works. And see, we're often guilty of that mindset. Often, we desperately want the Lord to focus on us when we haven't been focusing upon Him. Have you ever been guilty of that? I mean, you've just been in cruise control in life, doing your own thing, just, just keeping God at arm's length, not really dependent upon Him, not seeking Him, not walking with Him, not talking with Him. But yet when, when crisis comes, you say, God, focus on me. Help, help, help. Help me in the situation. And Samuel's saying to the Israelites, listen, if you want God to focus on you, how about you focus on him? That, that's a biblical principle. James says that if we draw near to God, he will then draw near to us. That's how it works. You can't ignore God and expect God to come to your rescue. That's, that's not how things work. God will not be dishonored. In that way. And so Samuel says, if you want God's help, if you want deliverance from the Philistines, he says there in verse 3, return to the Lord with all your heart. And I would say to you today, if you want the Lord's help in your life, in your marriage, in your parenting, in your ministry, in, on the job, if you want God's help, if you recognize you are desperate for God's help, you need, as Samuel said, to return to the Lord with all your heart. Now, here's the question. How do you do that? What does that mean practically? How do you return to the Lord with all your heart? Well, let me give you three words that will help you to understand what this means for your life. Number one, 
is the word remove. Everybody say remove. There are some things you've got to remove. If you're going to give God all your heart, you've got to remove some stuff that's cluttering your heart. Look what Samuel says in verse 3. If you return to the Lord with all your heart, here's what you do. You remove the foreign gods and the Asheroth from among you. The nation of Israel, God's chosen people, were worshiping false gods. Asheroth was a, was a, a pole that it would set up to worship a false god, a pagan god. They were worshiping Baal, who was the Canaanite god of fertility. And they were chasing after all these false pagan gods and ignoring the one true God. And Samuel's saying, listen, if you want God's help, you need to put away the idols. The idols can't help you. You need to put them away. Stop worshiping false gods. Now, you might say, wait, I've got that one covered. There, there's no Ashtaroth pole in my garage. We did not pay homage to Baal before we left for church today. So we're, we're covered there. Can I tell you this? Every culture has its idols. Every culture has its idols. And it might help for me to define for you what an idol is. Tim Keller writes about idolatry that while traditional idol worship still occurs in many places of the world, internal idol worship within the heart is universal. In Ezekiel 14.3, God says about the elders of Israel, these men have set up their idols in their hearts. God was saying that the human heart takes good things like a successful career, love, material possessions, even family, and turns them into ultimate things. Our hearts deify them as the center of our lives because we think they can give us significance and security Safety and fulfillment if we attain them. So here's what he's saying. An idol is when you take something that's a good thing and you, you elevate it to, to a godlike status. You seek that thing in your life to give you what only God can ultimately give you. He goes on to define an idol this way. Anything more important to you than God. So everybody look at me for a moment. If you have anything in your life or anyone in your life that's more important to you than God, you're an idol worshiper. may not be Ashtaroth, may not be Baal, but you're an idol worshiper because anything more important to you than God is an idol. He goes on to say anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give you what only God can give you. If anything becomes more fundamental than God to your happiness, meaning in life, an identity, then it is an idol. So you say, Wade, I may have some idols in my life. There are some things in my life that are more important to me, more fundamental for my happiness than God. It's an idol. And, and what we've done in, in contemporary cultures, we, when we have idols, we just call it, you know, wrong priorities or busyness. But listen to me. When God is not at the top of your priority list, when, 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 when Jesus is not the preeminent Lord of your life, it's not just that your priorities have shifted, it is that you are guilty of idolatry. And how do you deal with idols? Just like they did in 1 Samuel 7, you remove them. You, you get them out of your life. You, you say, I don't, I don't want to worship success. I don't want to worship my business. Or I don't want to worship my job or worship my family. 
those things are good things, but they're gifts from God. I need to let those things point me to the one who gave me all those good things. You remove the idols. You say, I'm not going to have someone or something that's higher on my priority list than Jesus. Jesus is going to be number one in my life. You remove the idols. There's a second word that describes for us how we can turn to the Lord with all of our heart. The second word is the word repent. Everybody say repent. It's interesting in, in today's church culture, we don't talk about repentance very much, but it's a very important biblical word. The word repent means to, to stop and turn. It, it means to stop going the wrong direction and then to turn and go the right direction. And they're repenting here in this text. Look what it says in verse 6. Actually, verse 5. Samuel said, Gather all Israel to Mizpah, and I will pray to the Lord for you. They gathered to Mizpah and drew water and poured it out before the Lord and fasted on that day and said there, watch this, We have sinned against the Lord. They're repenting. They're saying, Okay, we've worshipped Baal, Ashtaroth. We haven't been worshipping God alone. We're not making excuses for that. It's, been a, it's a sin. We don't want to do that anymore. We don't want to go that direction. We're going to stop. We're going to recognize it's wrong. And we're going to turn and go in a new direction. We're going to go towards the one true God. That's repentance. It's a a spiritual U-turn. And notice the expressions of their repentance in this text. It says in verse 6, They drew water and poured it out before the Lord and fasted on that day. What's happening? Why would they take buckets of water and just pour it out onto the ground? Why would they abstain from eating food? This was was self-denial meant to express the intensity of their desire for God. They're saying to God, God, more than we need water, more than we need food, we need you. We want you. We are returning to you. We're going to stop idol worship. We're going to chase hard after you. These are expressions of repentance. It it, it was their way of saying, God, we mean business. This is serious stuff, and we really want to be different. We really want to go in a new direction as a nation. Can I ask you a question? Do you mean business with God? I mean, are you really, listen to me, if you identify idols in your life, if you, if you identify wrong priorities in your life, are you really serious about getting that right? Do you really want God to remove that stuff from your life so that you can align your heart with Him and His will and His way? Are you real? listen, are you really serious about change? Do, do you really want to leave this room today different than when you walked in? Or are you just going through the religious motions? Listen to me. Playing church doesn't change lives. But when you're serious and you mean business and you repent and turn from the way you are headed and turn to the one true God, God will change your life. They meant business. And notice what happens in verse 9. They're repenting here. Samuel took a suckling lamb and offered it for a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And Samuel cried to the Lord for Israel. So he's offering this, this lamb as an offering before God. This is part of the sacrificial ceremonial law of God that he gave the Israelites. And the entire elaborate sacrificial system, you know, killing animals, shedding blood, sprinkling it on the altar, all of that, all of that, was not meant to save. As a matter of fact, Hebrews says that, that the blood of bulls and goats can't save. 
all of that was meant to point Israel and to point us to the one who can save. These, these sacrifices were meant to point to the ultimate sacrifice who is Jesus Christ. Jesus came to earth. He died on the cross for our sins. He rose from the dead. He's the only way to be saved because he took our sin and died for our sin. He took our punishment for us, right? He's the ultimate sacrifice. So this, this atoning this atonement, this giving of the Lamb, was meant to point people to God's ultimate atonement that was made available through the Messiah, Jesus Christ. You see, when God forgives us of our sin, when God creates in us a clean heart, He does it based upon the shed blood of His Son, Jesus Christ. And when He does it, He can offer us full forgiveness he can wipe the slate clean because jesus died for those sins right now listen to me this is why this is important there is freedom in repentance when you get right with god god will wipe the slate clean he'll give you a brand new start isn't there freedom in that it's not god trying to take away your fun or 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 give you some kind of rigorous demands it's God saying, listen, if you'll turn from your idols and, and turn to me, you'll find the freedom and freshness of a new start. That's what this atonement is all about. That God forgives and wipes the slate clean. And so they were repenting of their sins. But, but there's a third word here. So when, how do I return to the Lord with all my heart? You've got to remove. You've got to repent. But third, you've got to refocus. Notice what Samuel says in verse 3. If you return to the Lord with all your heart, remove the foreign gods and Ashtaroth from among you, and, here it is, direct your hearts to the Lord and serve Him alone. This word direct is an interesting word in the Hebrew language. It's haikinu. It, it means, to, means to fix, to establish, to point your heart towards the Lord. It's used over 200 times in the Old Testament. And, and here in the New American Standards translate as direct. Turn your hearts, refocus your hearts toward the Lord. Make sure you are moving, not away from Him. Make sure you're moving towards Him. Make sure that He's your, your focus in life. You've got to just refocus. There are times in life when we get distracted, when we just maybe ignore God, and when God gets our attention and we get in a desperate situation and we want and need His help, We've got to just refocus. And say, God, I want you to focus on my life, but I understand that before I ask you to focus on my life, I need to focus upon you. Because you're worthy of my focus. You're worthy of my worship. You're worthy of my praise. You're worthy to be the ultimate priority in my life. Refocus. Do you need to refocus today? You've just kind of been doing your own thing and, and not really giving the Lord the best of your of your, of your life, the best of your focus. We've got to refocus. And so there's a, there's a positioning here. Notice they recognize their need for God's help. They're lamenting. And then notice they, they are under Samuel's leadership, are, are positioning themselves to receive God's help. They're getting right with him. Before they ask God to focus upon them, they're going to focus upon him. You got that? But there's a third thing here. And this is so practical. You say, wait, this goes without saying. But let me give it to you. It's ask God for his help. Ask God for his help. That's very simple. That's very practical, isn't it? If you need God's help, you ask God for his help. You say, wait, you didn't, you didn't even need to say that. Really? 
when's the last time you asked God for help? When's the last time, I mean, you really sought God for His help in your life? There's a couple truths I want you to see here. First of all, God invites us to ask Him for help. He invites us to do that. Matthew 7, Jesus said, Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. Jesus said, You have not because you, what? Ask not. Hebrews 4, I love this verse. Therefore let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Early on in our marriage, Claire and I had a, a crisis moment with a health issue and, and I was very worried. We were newlyweds and, and just weighed down with, with worry and anxiety. And I went and I booted up my computer one day and I checked my email and an email came in from my brother and all that was in the email was Hebrews 4.16. Draw near the throne of grace, to find mercy and help in time of need. Boy, that encouraged me in that moment. God invites us to come to his throne. Think about that. To come to his throne with our needs. 1 Peter 5, verse 6. The Bible says, Therefore humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. The Psalms say that anxiety in the heart of a man weighs him down. When you have all those cares and burdens from life, God invites you to take them and give them to him. To ask him for help to, to take that burden and let God get under that burden and carry that burden for you. He invites us to ask. He invites us to cast our cares upon him it's an amazing reality listen to me it's an amazing reality that the omnipotent omniscient god of the universe invites little old you and little old me to come to him with our cares and concerns is that not amazing i mean it, it, it's almost breathtaking that that god invites us to ask and yet we're so reticent to ask Think about that old hymn. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. He invites us to ask. And then secondly, you think about this idea. We should fervently ask Him for help. We should fervently ask Him for help. Look what it says in verse 9. Samuel took a suckling lamb and offered it for a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And Samuel cried to the Lord for Israel. And the Lord answered him. Notice that word, Samuel cried to God for Israel. That word cried is a, is a, a word in the Hebrew that's zawak. It, 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 it's defined in the dictionary of biblical languages as a call out for help, an appeal, wailing, weeping. It means to make public sounds of physical pain and emotional anguish with a focus that one may possibly respond to the cry. I like that. It means you cry out because you believe that God just may answer your crying out. When was the last time you, on your knees before the God of the universe, in desperation, cried out for his help? God, you've, you've given me a, a wife, help me to be the husband you've called me to be. 
God, you've given me children or grandchildren. God, help me to, to be the, 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 the spiritual leader I need to be, to raise them in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. God, you give me a ministry role and something to do for your glory. Help me to do this with, with excellence for the fame of your name. When's the last time you asked God for his help? Can I encourage you with this? Some of the most theologically profound prayers that you will ever pray are one-word prayers. Did you know it can be very deep to just cry out, Help! That's deep. Amen? Because in that one-word prayer, you're recognizing that you can't fix it yourself, and you're going to the one who can absolutely intervene and use that situation for his glory. It is theologically profound and appropriate to cry out, Help! To God. He invites us to ask. And we should fervently call on his name. Fervently ask God for his help. But there's one final truth I want you to see. How can you make sure that God is your helper in life? Number one, you recognize your need. Number two, you position your life to receive his help. Number three, you ask God for his help. That's pretty practical, right? And then number four... You thank God for his help. When you ask and God answers, you thank him. Look what it says in verse 10. Now Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, and the Philistines drew near to battle against Israel. But the Lord thundered with a great thunder on that day against the Philistines and confused them so that they were routed before Israel. God gave his people a great victory over the, the oppressive Philistines. The men of Israel went out. Of Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and struck them down as far as below Bethkar. So they prayed for help and God gave them a great victory. Now look in verse 12. Then Samuel took a stone and set it between Mizpah and Shin and named it Ebenezer, saying, Thus far the Lord has helped us. Now I want you to see two truths here very quickly. Number one, we need to recognize his hand of blessing. Notice that Samuel didn't gather together the, the army of Israel and say, Great job with military strategy. Or, good job fighting, guys. What's he say? The Lord thus far has helped us. He's the one that gave us victory in the battle. He's the one that, that thundered and confused the Philistines so that we routed them. The Lord has helped us. We need to recognize his hand of blessing. You know, there are times, if I'm honest with you, and I want to be honest with you, and I bet this happened in your life as well. There are times when I pray about something, and what I'm praying about happens, and then I wonder in the back of my mind, well, was that just coincidence? You ever done that? I, I prayed for this person to be healed, and, and they were healed. Is that God answering my prayer, or did, or did just time heal this issue in their life? And what happens is, we don't think supernatural thoughts. We think that, you know, that life just kind of happens and kind of works out, and it's not God directly intervening in our affairs. But listen, God is in control of everything. He's the God who works through providence. He's the one that's working in everything around us. And so when something happens that we ask for, we need to recognize it was God's hand at work. James says that every good and perfect gift is from above. So when something good happens in your life, when God responds when God comes to your rescue you need to step back and say this was God's hand God did this recognizing his hand of blessing but then secondly this is so important 
We need to look for ways to commemorate God's faithfulness. Notice there in verse 12, it says, He took a stone, and he set it up between these two towns, and he names it Ebenezer. The word Ebenezer means stone of help. Just to be a reminder of God's help, because he says in the next phrase, The Lord thus far has helped us. And every time you look at this stone, it's a reminder that God gave us victory over the Philistines. Now, if you're like me, you grew up singing the song in church, uh, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing, there's that line that says, Here I raise mine Ebenezer, hither by thy help I'm come. Uh, I've come. You say, what in the world does that mean? I-, I sang that song for years, had no clue what Ebenezer meant, other than it was the name of a guy in, you know, Christmas Carol, Ebenezer Scrooge, all right? I didn't know, I didn't, I didn't know what the word Ebenezer meant. But here, in this text, it tells us. It means the stone of help. And it was a commemoration of God's faithfulness. Every time somebody walked by and they saw the stone, they were going to remember how God's hand had delivered them from Philistine oppression. Now, this idea of commemorating God's faithfulness is found throughout the Bible. For example, after Noah was preserved with his family through the flood on the ark, he gets off the ark and he builds an altar to recognize God's hand of salvation to his family. When the Lord spared Abraham's son, Isaac, they sacrificed the ram caught in the thicket on the altar, calling it Jehovah-Jireh, meaning the Lord has provided this altar. was meant to, to point to God's faithfulness in providing a sacrifice in place of Isaac. After Jacob encountered God through a vision, he set up a stone as a pillar and ended at Bethel, which means the house of God. When God delivered the Israelites from Egyptian bondage and slavery, he instituted a Passover feast that they were to celebrate every year. And every year they took that feast together, it was a reminder of how God had delivered them, commemorating God's faithfulness. When God parted the waters of the Jordan for the Israelites to pass through, going into the Promised Land, Joshua set up 12 stones to commemorate the Lord's great act. Think about Jesus on the night before he was crucified. Jesus had his disciples together, and he instituted the Lord's Supper, the taking of bread, fruit of the vine, to commemorate the broken body and shed blood of Christ. And he said to them, as often as you do this, do this, what? In remembrance of me. The Lord's Supper was instituted by Jesus to commemorate the cross. To remind us of what Jesus did for us. There's something about our humanity that is prone to forget God. So God wants us to commemorate his faithfulness. I like this quote from Dale Ralph Davis, speaking of Samuel setting up the stone. He writes, he knows that it is memory that keeps gratitude fresh. And that gratitude keeps faith fresh. Faithful. I like that. He knew that it was important they remember God's hand at work. And I think we need to do better at commemorating God's faithfulness. As a church, when God does something great, we need to step back and say, God has done this. It's what our 10-year anniversary was about. We, we had fireworks and fried chicken and, and you know big party and special worship services. That was all meant to stop and say, God has done something. We're commemorating His faithfulness to our church. This, this needs to happen in your family's life. When God does something for your family, look for ways to commemorate. 
Maybe you need to go out and find a stone. Write on the stone the date. And write on that stone what God did for your family. Maybe God provided something or God sent a great healing to someone in your family. Commemorate it. So that when everybody sees the stone or whatever objects in your house, they are reminded of God's faithfulness. In your own individual life, look for ways to commemorate what God has done. Thank God for His help. When you ask and God answers, your heart should overflow with gratitude. Thank God for His help. Now here's the big idea of this passage. If I could sum up chapter 7 with one sentence, here's how I'd give it to you. Let me give, this, give you this sentence. We're going to close down. We are needy. So we should seek God's help and thank Him for His help. We are needy. So we should seek God's help. And when He helps us, thank Him for His help. Very simple idea, but it's profound. And one we need to take hold of and incorporate into our lives. We are needy. Now the guy that jumped off the monorail into the tiger's den, he caused that situation himself, right? He brought a little of that on himself. But he was needy. And sometimes we're needy just because we do dumb things, right? You ever got into a bad situation just because you've done something unwise? Sometimes we're just like that guy in the tiger den, so don't be so quick to judge, all right? Sometimes we're needy just because of life. Life is just tough, right? It's tough. So whether you find yourself in a, in a tough spot because of your own unwise decisions, or whether you find yourself in a tough spot just because life is hard, let that difficulty, let that desperation move you towards God. Because he's the only one who ultimately can help you.